In Luke chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples are generally on their way to Jerusalem. They've left, or at least they're beginning to leave, the region of Galilee, and they're making their way south towards Jerusalem. But as they do this in this extended season of Jesus' ministry, he understands the vital importance of getting the word out one last time before he goes to Jerusalem for the death that he's going to die and the resurrection that he's going to make evident. And so in this one last push, he's going to delegate 70 people to go out and to do the work. You'll see what I mean right here. Verse 1, Luke chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. You see, knowing that the time was short before his crucifixion, knowing that there was an added urgency to the work that Jesus did, Jesus said, listen, when I go into a village now, I want it to be prepared. And so I'm going to send out 35 teams, two by two, 70 people, two by two. That makes 35, right? 35 teams out to go out and to be my advance men into these different communities so that when I come in there and I present the message, people are ready, people are prepared. Now, this reminds us, his selection of the 70, that there was actually a much larger group of interested followers of Jesus than just the 12 that he chose as his disciples and his apostles. And from among this larger group of followers, Jesus chose these 70 others to do his work. Now, you know what I think is fascinating about these 70 others? As far as we know, we don't know the name of a single one of them. Not one. Completely anonymous. Their names are only known to God, yet they were called and commissioned to do an important work, and they were successful in that work. I like what an old Scottish preacher said about these uh, unnamed 70 people. He said this, It's better to be one of the unnamed 70 who did their work and were very happy in it, and whose names are known only to God, better perhaps safer too. There was a Judas in the twelve but we never hear of one among the 70. Now, there's just something wonderful about realizing this place that you can have in service that doesn't draw a spotlight or name a name, and that's what these 70 were doing. And so as Jesus got ready to commission these 70 and send them out, he thoughtfully paused and said something vital there in verse 2. Did you notice it? He said, the harvest is truly great. You see, using the analogy of a field of grain... Jesus explained why he felt an increased urgency about his work. He considered the multitude of needy humanity to be like a field that was ready for harvest. You see, when he thought of the greatness of human need, he saw it as an opportunity. Isn't that remarkable thinking? I mean, he looked out at all the lost, all the broken, all the sick, all the needy, and Jesus didn't look at it and think, what a huge, colossal problem that I have to deal with. Now, what did he look at it like? He looked at it like a 
field of grain that was ready for harvest. Now, if you're a farmer and you see a great big field of grain that's ready for harvest, how do you feel? You're like, yes, this is what I got into farming for. This is the whole point of it. The point of it isn't to plant seeds. The point of it isn't to water. The point of it isn't to till the ground. The point of it is to bring the harvest in. And I read this, and I read this, it's convicting to my heart. And I hope it's kind of convicting to some of your hearts here. That sometimes it's so easy for us to look at human need around us and look at it as a bother, as an inconvenience, as a problem. Jesus said, no, it's like an opportunity. I see it like a, a field full of white golden grain ready to be harvested. And if we use that picture suggested by Jesus, you can say that the harvest itself is large. It's a large harvest out there. How many needy and hurting and broken people are there in our community? I think there's plenty enough to go around, don't you? It is indeed a large harvest, but you can also say that the field itself is large. How big is this field of needy humanity? It's the whole world. It's everywhere that you go. Now, what I find fascinating about this is if you were to compare this with the Gospel of Matthew, specifically Matthew chapter 9, you'll find that Jesus said something very much like this in Matthew chapter 9, but not in the same circumstances. In other words, he said that in Matthew 9 earlier in his ministry and in a different place than right here. I have the idea of this, that Jesus said this word often. That often he looked out on needy humanity and said this to his disciples. The harvest truly is great, but the the workers are few, the laborers are few. That's the next thing he said. Did you notice that verse 2? The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Now this means not only there must be more workers, but what does it mean? If there's a lot of work and there's few workers, the ones who are workers get to work all the harder. And I think that's just what we have to realize sometimes. Yes, we want God to send more workers into the harvest. Yes, more people to get serious, to get committed, to say, yes, God, use me in any way that you can. I make myself utterly available for your service today. I'm going to go to my job just as before. I'm going to have my breaks and my lunches and do my work or travel my job or whatever it is that you do. I'm going to do all my daily routine just as before except for this one thing. I'm going to consciously try to make myself available for your service every hour of the day. That's being a laborer for his harvest. So look, it's not only that there would be more people who think that way, but also that those who already do think that way would say, I've got a lot of work to do. I better be serious about it. I've got to put my shoulder towards it because, ladies and gentlemen, this is a harvest that needs laborers. Do you realize that the good of a harvest, at least theoretically, can go to waste if there's not people out there to bring it in. You need people who will say, I will bring in the harvest. I will be one of your workers. I will sharpen my sickle, so to speak. See, Jesus warned us that these opportunities of human need and to bring people into his kingdom, they may be wasted out of a shortage of workers. So what do you do? Verse 2, he says, therefore, pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into the harvest. Pray. The work is so big. It's so massive. It's so important that it's never going to be done unless you pray first. Because, listen, it can't be done 
without a supernatural guidance, without a supernatural empowering. And this is how we lay hold of the supernatural power of God. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no technology that we can use to lay hold of the power of the Spirit of God. You, you can't get a better internet connection to do it. You, you can't get a new app on your you know, phone or your, your iPad or whatever it is. You can't get a new app. You can't get a new internet connection. You can't get this technology or that technology. But this is what you can do. You can pray. Prayer is the means by which we lay hold of the supernatural power of God and the filling and the flow of the Spirit. And that's why we need to do it. So we pray. We pray in the work of evangelism. But we also realize this. Please notice this beautiful phrasing. He says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He said it twice just so we would get the point. First of all, whose harvest is it? it? He is the Lord of the harvest. I think if he's the Lord of the harvest, it belongs to him. He's in charge of it. But secondly, he says that he would send out laborers into whose harvest? Into his harvest. Don't ever forget that. Even the most successful worker in God's kingdom. Now, I don't know how we can measure such things, so I'll just give an analogy here. And I'm not even saying that this is the most successful, though it is a mightily successful worker for God's kingdom. Take a man like Billy Graham. Ladies and gentlemen, on his best day, it's never been Billy Graham's harvest. It's always been the Lord's harvest through a man like that. So it's the Lord's harvest. So Jesus told them to pray this way. But then I love what he says in verse 3. Did you notice that? He says, go your way. Go. I like this. Pray that the Lord would send workers out of the harvest. And then you're done with the prayer. And what does God tell you to do? Go. Get out there and answer your own prayer. Be one of those ones who's going to go out and do it. I think that's a wonderful prayer to pray. If you pray that prayer, Lord, send workers out into your harvest. Don't be surprised when God stirs you to be more involved in harvest work than you ever thought before. Then I have to, it would be, it'd be malpractice of me if I didn't share this one last aspect from verse 3. Because you saw it. This very attractive thing about the call. He goes, okay, guys, let's go do it. Lord of the harvest, big harvest, great opportunity. Go, go, isn't it great? And then he just throws this little line out there. Did you see it in verse 3? I send you out as lambs among wolves. Wow, thank you. That's a great one, isn't it? There you go, lambs. Go, Go share the gospel with all those wolves. That's a frightening thought, isn't it? See, Jesus commanded them to go with a certain kind of heart, a heart that would trust God and not be afraid of of abuse, not be afraid of maltreatment. And by the way, I want you to understand this. Think about this. Isn't that exactly how God the Father sent the Son into the world? Was he not sent as a spotless sheep into the midst of a world full of wolves? that we're ready to tear them apart. Now, that's a dangerous mission. I'll tell you to you right up front. To go out as a lamb among wolves, that's a dangerous mission, but it's a very hopeful one. Because if you think about it in world populations, I guess I should have looked this up online before I came. But just for my understanding, there's a lot more sheep in the world than there are wolves, aren't there? I mean, the sheep out, shouldn't, shouldn't all the sheep be dead and the wolves be fat? Doesn't work that way in God's world, does it? The sheep just keep multiplying. 
the walls become fewer and fewer, it's a hopeful and a successful mission that Jesus sent them out on. Now, he's going to tell them specific things to do. Look here, verse 4. He says, carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever you enter, whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it'll return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wagers. Do not go from house to house, whatever city you enter, and they receive you. Eat such things as are set before you. So I love this. First, Jesus told them to pray. What? No, I'm going to take it back. First, he told them to look at the fields ready to harvest. Then he told them to pray. Then he told them to go. And then finally, he tells them how to go. This is the mentality I want you to go with. And the first thing he told them to go with was a mentality that says, trust me. Carry neither money bag, sack, nor sandals. Travel light. Trust me. Don't carry a great, big, gigantic suitcase with everything that you'll ever need. Trust me that I'll provide for you along the way. By the way, there were rabbinical traditions and regulations that said when a person went up to the Temple Mount to conduct holy business, they could not carry a knapsack, a purse, or, or shoe, extra shoes or things like that because they were engaged in holy work. And it may be very much that that's the same idea Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. You guys are going out being sent on holy work. Don't encumber yourself with things that aren't absolutely necessary. Don't be distracted by your natural concerns. And don't even be distracted by overly courteous customs. That's why he says there in verse 4, greet no one along the road. You know, in the ancient Eastern world, two travelers gathering, meeting together on a road, they could easily spend 20 to 40 to 60 minutes just exchanging a greeting along the side of the road. She said, you don't have time for that nonsense. The word has to get out. Say hello and move on. That's what Jesus told them to do. And then he also said in verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. In other words, the customs of the day meant that they wouldn't be staying in inns because back then, many times, not all the time, but many times, inns were synonymous with houses of prostitution. So instead, they would trust in the generosity and the kindness, the hospitality of places where they would go. Enter into a home, say, peace be with you, peace to this house. And they were instructed to bring that blessing of peace to each house if the home would receive it. Now, in all of this traveling, in all of this trusting God to provide through the kindness of others, I find it very interesting what Jesus said there in verse 7. Did you notice that? In verse 7, he said, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. In other words, Jesus said this, man, you go out there with the mentality that you're working. You're not out there as charity cases. You're not sponging off of people living in their rooms and, you know, eating their food and enjoying their hospitality just so you can have a little vacation. You're there. You're there as a laborer, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's the mentality that Jesus told them to have. But I love how he sort of caps off this mentality with this last little bit of instruction there in verse 9. It's not really the last bit, but it's an essential bit where he says in verse 9, and heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. First of all, heal the sick. Trust God for a supernatural empowering to meet practical needs. That's what they needed to do as they went about. And that healing was important because it showed 
that the kingdom of God had come among them in power and that the power was evident in acts of mercy and kindness. Please remember that almost the entire Jewish world at that time, when they were looking for the kingdom of God, they looked for it to be expressed in violent acts of the overthrow of the Roman government. But Jesus says, no, you show them that the power of the kingdom is here, but it's expressed in humble acts of mercy and kindness. The kingdom of God is present. It's come near to you. That's what it says right there in verse 9. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. This meant that Jesus wanted them to display both in their actions, but then also in their preaching the nearness of God's kingdom. This would be a good advance for Jesus as he came to the same villages. Verse 10, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its street and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me, and he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Now here, just before Jesus is about to sort of, you know, boot them on the way and send them to do, he gives them sort of a heavy warning. He says that when you go from city to city, when you go from place to place, if they reject you, you walk out of that city and treat it as if it were a Gentile city. In the first century, Very holy Jewish people, when they had to go in or through a Gentile city, which they didn't like to do, but if they felt like they had to, when they left that city, before they got to the city limits, they would take their feet and they would shake the dust off their feet as a way of saying, we don't want any of that Gentile dust to come with us as we go on our way. Jesus said to his disciples, these 70 who were going out, if they reject you in your message, You treat them as if they were a Gentile city. What you need to show them is that there is a price to be paid for rejecting Jesus and his kingdom. I just want you to think upon that for a moment. I I, I wonder, I I think about as a man who tells people about Jesus all the time. I, I, I wonder if I communicate that enough. I wonder if I look at people square in the eye enough and say, listen, Jesus Christ wants to change your life. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants to put you in that place where you're right with God and change everything for the better in your life. And I love telling people about how Jesus wants to do such great and wonderful things in their life. That's the good part. But I also need to be able to look at them square in the eye and just in a very personable but serious way, let them know there is a terrible price to pay if you reject Jesus. We're not fooling around. This isn't one of those things, well, you know, take it or leave it. What's the big deal? It's a huge deal. That's why Jesus told them about the judgment that was to come. And what was the judgment? Look at it right there in verse 11. He says, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. This is what they do. They're about ready to leave the city that they had been trying to do the work in. 
but they've been rejected. They've been pushed out. They shake the dust off their feet. They look back to the city. They say, hey, you guys, let me tell you something. The kingdom came near to you, but you rejected it. And you know what I think fascinating about that? Is that they had to have some credentials that the kingdom had actually come near. But they could see the people who were touched in supernatural ways. They could see the truth of the message. They could see the power of the word preached. And they could know, yes, the kingdom of God in some way had come near to us, but we had rejected it. And that's when they could give the word of judgment that Jesus told them, verse 12, it'll be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. The cities of Sodom and Tyre and Sidon were proverbial cities in biblical days were places where the judgment of God came down. And Jesus said something very heavy, that these cities in his own day that had seen some amazing manifestations of the kingdom of God at work, these cities that rejected him in the midst of that, they would be under a greater guilt than the city of Sodom. I just want you to think about that right now. There, there might be people you think, oh, no, you can't get worse than the sins of the city of Sodom. You cannot get worse than that. No, 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 that's the worst. Jesus said there will be people under a greater judgment than the city of Sodom, than the city of Tyre, than the city of Sidon. And what's that? That's for when the kingdom of God comes right next to you. You see it right there in its power, in its authority, and you reject it. You send it on its way. It's a way not only of rejecting the work of God, it's a way of rejecting the very person of God. That's why he says in verse 16, He who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. That's heavy. You represent Jesus so much. This was the charge to the 70 who go out. I want you to represent me, Jesus said so intensely, that if they reject you, it's like they're rejecting me. And if they reject me, it's like they reject the Father who sent me. What a responsibility, isn't that? For us to say, Jesus, I don't want anybody to reject me because I was a stupid jerk. If anybody rejects me, if anybody dislikes me, let it be because Jesus Christ is shining through me and they're rejecting him. This was the charge given to these disciples. So verse 17, then the 70 returned with joy. You know, if you're making a movie of this, you'd probably do one of those great montages where this, you know, the music plays and all these great scenes of them preaching and ministering and healing and doing these great works. So I don't know how many days go by. Maybe it was just a long weekend. Maybe it was just an outreach trip. I don't know. I don't know if it was a few days or many days. But they came back to Jesus. Verse 17, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, I like this. First of all, I like it because this was a good day, wasn't it? You know, I, I have in my, you know, opportunity and the work that God gives me to do, I get to interact with and mix with a lot of pastors, with a lot of people who are serving the Lord in some way or another. And you meet an awful lot of them who are discouraged, you know. They're, they're just, they feel beat down. The work is difficult. They're trying hard, but they just, it's a struggle. And that. I meet a lot of people like that who are struggling with that. And then sometimes I'll meet people, they are just flying high. It's a good day. It's like this. It's like the, the 70 when they come back. Lord, even the demons were cast out in your name. It's amazing. And this is what I often tell people who are just 
so pumped up with joy, I tell them, enjoy it. Just enjoy it. I say, because you and I both know, not every day is like this in the ministry, is it? So enjoy it for everything that you got. So this was a good day. Now, by the way, how many returned? Oh, let me ask you the first question. How many went out? How many came back? Well, none of the wolves got them, did they? Jesus sent them out as lambs in the midst of wolves, but not a wolf got a one. All 70 came back. And they came back saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, this is what I like about this. In the original commission, at least as it's recorded here in the Gospel of Matthew, the original commission to the 70 said nothing about casting out demons. It said about healing the sick and proclaiming the kingdom. It didn't say anything about casting out demons. I think this, I think that the disciples experienced something that many people experience when they step out to serve God is God gives them more than they ever expected. You've experienced that, haven't you? Some opportunity that God's given you. Maybe it's been on a mission trip. Maybe it's been right here in our community. Maybe it's been in an unexpected conversation that you had, but you were bold enough to step out and say, okay, Lord, use me in some way. And I tell you, God gave you more than you were even expecting. And that's what it seems that they did for the disciples right there. I want you to know this too. I think they had their heads on straight, the 70 did, when they came back saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They didn't say this, even the demons are subject to us in our superior spirituality because now God uses us. No, they knew who it was, didn't they? They knew that it was the name of Jesus at work. Now, look at this. Verse 18, Jesus said something very interesting. I bet nobody would have expected Jesus to say this in verse 18 following that. They come back saying, Lord, it's great. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. It was amazing. What does Jesus say, verse 18? And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Disciples, yeah? No, I think it was a very appropriate comment of Jesus. You see, the success of these commissioned disciples, especially their authority over demonic spirits, caused Jesus to speak of the fall of Satan. And when he fell, he fell as quickly and as dramatically as lightning falls from heaven. In other words, how fast does lightning fall from the sky? Pretty fast. I mean, I'm sure they've timed it and you could look it up, but it's just all pretty fast. Now, many people wonder, what exactly is Jesus talking about when he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven? Can I tell you that there are actually four falls of Satan Recorded in the scriptures. Here they are. Number one, there's the fall from glorified to profane. You'll find that in Ezekiel chapter 28 and in Isaiah chapter 14. The fall from glorified to profane. The second fall was the fall from having access to heaven to restriction to the earth. In my best study and estimation of the scriptures, that has not yet happened. That is a waiting for a period that we call in the scriptures the Great Tribulation. That has not yet happened. You see, here in the present day, it would seem that Satan has access to heaven as well as earth. Because the Bible says that in the present day, he is the accuser of the brethren and he accuses us before God day and night. So it seems at the present time, Satan has some kind of concourse, some kind of ability to to, to transition between heaven and earth. 
But there will come a time when God says, no, I'm kicking you out of heaven and you're restricted to the earth. That's the second fall of Satan. The third fall of Satan is from earth down to bondage in the bottomless pit. Again, I don't believe that that has happened yet. And the fourth fall of Satan is from that pit to the lake of fire. Now, of these four falls of Satan, one of them has already occurred and three have yet to happen. That's why I believe that when Jesus described this, he described the first fall of Satan in his words. And they say, no, 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 that can't be true because Jesus said that he fell from heaven. Well, no, I don't think we're reading it right. Check this out. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, it wasn't I saw Satan fall from heaven, but I saw him fall like lightning from heaven. He saw him fall from glorified to profane, and it happened so quick, as quick as a lightning bolt comes from heaven to sky. Do I need to remind you that in the ancient Greek, as in many languages, the word for heaven and sky are the same? So he could very well just be saying, as from lightning from the sky. You see, Satan's fall was an immediate judgment upon that rebellious spirit. Though it wasn't a complete judgment, that waited for later. But now every time the kingdom of Jesus is presented with truth and power, it's like another judgment of Satan all over again. When Jesus saw these 70 disciples return, having so been so successful in the ministry that God gave them, it's like Jesus I saw Satan's tail getting kicked all over again. It's like he fell once again and again and again. It reminded Jesus of that original fall. And don't you just make you want to serve Jesus and deliver more blows to the devil, to kick him around even more. You you just get a little bit tired over the tyranny that sometimes it seems that the devil has over this earth. And we say, no, any opportunity we have just to thump the devil's melon, we want to do it. And Jesus says, yes, these these men doing their work of beating back the works of darkness and proclaiming his kingdom, it reminded Jesus of the fall of Satan. But one other thing before I move on, please notice this. I think Jesus also spoke this as a warning against pride. Why did Satan fall like lightning from heaven? Why? Because of pride. And sometimes there is no greater temptation to pride than when a man or a woman enjoys their first success in ministry. When you enjoy the first real success you'll ever have in serving God, sometimes that is the time of greatest temptation to pride. And if you avoid it then, well, good. You're ready for the next challenge. And then Jesus said, verse 19, he goes back, continuing on. He says, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. First, Jesus said, you guys aren't done beating back the works of darkness. I'm going to give you more authority to continue to do it. But please, in the midst of all this spiritual success that you enjoy, do not let it go to your head. Please remember this. Please remember that the most important thing is that your name is written in heaven. Friends, it's a dangerous thing. When Jesus gives us authority, we need to go out and use it with all confidence and strength 
but always keeping it in perspective. Now, here's the confidence and strength part. Just to believe that God gives you the authority. I love something that uh, F.B. Meyer said relevant to this. He said this, if you dare to live in the risen Christ, you share his empire and all the fruits of his victory over Satan. How completely did Jesus find victory over Satan? Total. Jesus says, I will allow you to share in that same victory. This is what he invites us to do. But then there's a secondary sense of that. We, we sort of rejoice and relish in this great power, this great authority that Jesus gives us. Yet at the same time, we hold it in utmost humility. And we realize that if we're going to rejoice over anything in the Christian life, we don't rejoice over how powerful we are, how successful we are, or, or how much great things we may or may do for the kingdom of God. No, we don't rejoice over any of that primarily. Primarily what we find our joy in is what God has done for us. He said that your names are written in heaven. Can I just ask you, it's very simple. Who wrote your name in heaven? Did you write it? Did you go up to heaven, you know, with that nice little Bic pen or something like that and write it? You didn't write it, did you? God wrote your name in heaven. You put your trust in him and he wrote your name in heaven. Rejoice in what God has done for you more than in what you may do for him. Well, verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus said something remarkable in verse 21. He said, on that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. The phrasing in the original Greek is very strong. It means to exult. It means to be thrilled. Jesus was thrilled in the spirit. It wasn't a superficial joy or happiness. It was a deep joy, but it was a profound joy. Now, can I tell you something? Did you know that this is the only place in the Gospels where it specifically says that Jesus rejoiced? I don't mean for a moment that it was the only place that Jesus rejoiced, but it's the only place it tells us about it. This man of sorrows who often had the cares of the world literally upon his shoulders. This man who wept many times is only recorded as rejoicing once. And do you realize what he rejoiced over? When his people were used in his hands. When his people furthered his kingdom. Don't you want to make Jesus rejoice? Don't you want to say, yes, Lord, I want to be a vessel for your rejoicing. And so Jesus, after rejoicing, verse 21 says, I thank you, Father. His joy made him break out in prayer, and he praised God the Father for his wisdom, for his plan. And then he praised God for his own unique relationship with the Father, adding on verse 21, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Jesus looks out at the 70 who had been wonderfully used by God, successful in their steps of faith. And what does he say? They're like babes. They're like infants. Now, I don't know if the 70 kind of said, well, what do you think about us? But Jesus was just telling the truth. There you are, he's just simple believers. 
you know, not necessarily a bright, shining star among them. Simple believers. But, you know, God loves to use the simple. God loves to use the people who will let Jesus get the glory instead of giving it to themselves. Verse 23, let's wrap it up, these two verses. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you've seen and have not seen it, and to hear what you heard and have not heard it. He gets them together and he goes, Okay, guys, let me say something to you. You don't even know how blessed you are. Jesus looked back. He looked back and he thought of Noah. He thought of Abraham. He thought of David. He thought of Moses. He thought of Isaiah. He thought of Ezekiel. He thought of Solomon. He thought of all these great men of the Old Testament. And he said, they would all kill to see what you see today. They lived in a very privileged day. And you know what? So do we. I believe, I can't give you a date, but doesn't it seem like the coming of Jesus is at the door? And and isn't it wonderful for us to think we lived in a privileged generation? We do today. You know, there there were privileged generations in, in times past, but couldn't we be the one that sees the return of Jesus to this earth? Yes, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So look, how do we do it? Look around. The fields are white to harvest. Lord, use me in whatever way I can put my hand to it. Make me one of these servants of yours. Father, that's my prayer. I pray it, Lord, for every one of us. I pray it for myself. I pray, God, that you'd help me to be a better herald of your kingdom, not just in words, but in actions. So that that I could say and everybody could say it of all of us as a community that the kingdom of God is among us. And, And therefore, Lord, if they would reject it then, that they would know they'd be rejecting something heavy, something real, something tangible. And Jesus, we need to hear it from you. We need to sense the presence, the power of your spirit. Do it, Lord. Work in us. Enlighten our eyes so that we can see the need, so we can see the harvest that's out there. And Lord, equip us to be like these 70 humble servants of yours who get more than we expect when we step out to serve you. Do it, Lord. We we want you to rejoice over us the way you rejoiced over them. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.